0: for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: This is an audio-only version of a then and now video. To see the full video, search then and now on YouTube. Enjoy. What's our relationship to knowledge about the world and ourselves? How is it collected, organised, thought about, and in what way does it have power over us? How does it shape us, mould our desires, discipline us? If Foucault's argument had to be summed up in a crude way, it would be this, that knowledge and power are intimately linked. He isn't talking about power as we normally understand it, though. In fact, his entire body of work can also be thought of as an exploration of how power functions, and how the power knowledge duality changes shape over time. Philosopher Todd May sums up Foucault's work in another way. He's always asking one question Who are we? Knowledge, power, and importantly, history is always a part of us right now. It lives in us. It forms us, but it could have and always can be different. The standard account of the human relationship to knowledge might look something like this. As we learn more, knowledge accumulates around us, in front of us. This account assumes that the person looking at the accumulation stays the same while the knowledge builds around the person over history. It assumes the perspective doesn't change. It also assumes that the way this knowledge is organised and the conditions that gave rise to it are always the same. It doesn't matter where the collector is, the knowledge, if verified, is subjective and added to the pile. This traditional view then assumes that we have a neutral, free overview of this information, that we ourselves aren't affected by it. Foucault disagrees. Our perspective matters. As Thomas Nagel put it, there is no view from nowhere. If we acknowledge that the way we collect and order knowledge matters makes a difference as to how it's approached, used, interpreted, then this insight becomes even more powerful when we ask, what if that knowledge is about us, about humans, ourselves? If the way that knowledge is collected, ordered and interpreted changes, does that change who we are? Foucault says that in a society, different bodies of learning, philosophical ideas, everyday opinions, but also institutions, commercial practices and police activities, mores, all refer to a certain implicit knowledge special to this society. These bodies are what makes possible, at any given moment, the appearance of a theory, an opinion, a practice. Understanding Nietzsche is essential for understanding Foucault and the post-structural trend in general. Nietzsche is the thinker that had the biggest influence on him. Towards the end of the 19th century, Nietzsche challenged the idea that human nature was universal and unchanging over time, and he also challenged the idea that history is progressive, linear, moving towards a goal, having a grand narrative. History is contingent. It's open-ended. He argued that the concepts of good and evil were defined differently at different times, They were not static ideas but historically relative. There is no universal concept of good or evil. Furthermore, our understanding of what is good and evil is determined in part by power. Who's in power, in Nietzsche's case the clergy, determined what the flock should think of as good and evil. Religious morality became culturally dominant because of the church's power, but we can see how arbitrary some of that morality is today. Importantly, for both Nietzsche and Foucault, power is power in a neutral sense. It doesn't mean nefarious power, or physical strength, or technological military superiority, but power as in influence, the power to. The way the sun powers plants, petrol a car, professors influencing students, the power of a politician to represent a constituency. Power has many forms. Foucault also owes a debt to Freud and Marx. Whereas for thinkers like Descartes or Kant, there's a rational, calculating mind at the centre of consciousness, Marx and Freud realised, revolutionarily, that we're also a product of unconscious, material, or pre conscious phenomena, desires, economic structures. We can be largely unaware of how the cogs of our mind function beneath the surface. The debate over whether we're free thinking eyes or predetermined subjects continued into the 20th century where it developed into a debate in France between existentialists, emphasising the free eye, and structuralists, emphasising the social, cultural or linguistic structures that determine who we are. Foucault was influenced by and educated in the context of this debate, but in many ways also ignores it, or at least sidesteps it. For Foucault, we are both a product of history, of the structures around us, and able to change them, The fact that the structure can change, and does change over the course of history, is why Foucault is labelled as a post-structuralist. He is, though, most fundamentally, interested in how we are moulded, normalised, disciplined and subjectified by these long historical processes. I'll introduce Foucault's thought through his three most important works, The Order of Things, Discipline and Punish, and The History of Sexuality. The earlier Foucault approached the question of power knowledge by what he called archaeology, and the latter work looked at it through the lens of genealogy. Different periods, what Foucault calls epistemes, have different underlying assumptions, codes, and rules, mostly unconscious, or at least structural, about how to think about things in the world. He wrote, My objective for more than 25 years has been to sketch out a history of the different ways in our culture that humans develop knowledge about themselves. Economics, biology, psychiatry, medicine, penology. The main point is not to accept this knowledge at face value but to analyse these so-called sciences as very specific truth games related to specific techniques that human beings use to understand themselves. Because these rules change over time, different periods or cultures can have a completely different way of looking at knowledge and subsequently of understanding themselves. Discovering these rules is what Foucault called archaeology. The seminal order of things published in France in 1966 and in English in 1970 is Foucault's archaeological study of these unconscious rules and their change over time what he calls the conditions of possibility for the emergence of knowledge. Not just what we think, but the very way we think changes over time, and the way we think in turn determines the possibilities of what we think. He wants to discover not the real empirical processes between, say, the scientist and their object of study, the matters of fact that make the moment objective, but the conditions that give rise to the moment in the first place, the underlying structure that moves the scientist to choose that object, ask that question, order it, catalogue it, talk about it in a certain way. He looks at three different epistemes: The Renaissance, roughly the 14th to 17th centuries, the classical, 17th to 18th, and the modern, from around the beginning of the 19th. He argues that during the Renaissance, the world was thought of as being ordered by resemblance and similitude. Aconite, for example, was thought to cure eye diseases because it resembled the eye. Words, too, were part of a great system in which the word eye resembled the aconite and the physical eye. It all went round in a big circle. The Renaissance saw the reintroduction of ancient ideas back into Europe that influenced this. For the ancient Greeks, resemblances could even be hidden. They had to be drawn out through interpretation. When Socrates asks what a human soul is, for example, he compares it to the city, because the city's much bigger and you can see more clearly what's hidden in the soul. And both the soul and the city have a harmony of three elements merchants who provide and make the money, like the soul's desires, guardians who protect the soul's defensive, honourable part, and rulers who rule, like the soul's reason. During the next period, the classical one, things started to be measured, classified, taxonomized, ordered, put into tables. Words and symbols became disconnected from the similitude, from the pattern of the earlier period. Rather than being part of the system of resemblance, words began to be thought of as just representing the signified object. Unlike the Renaissance period, in the classical one, you can't decipher language like biblical interpretation to understand the world. Observation of the world becomes more important. Ordering becomes a matter of classification, questioning how we classify, by counting, how many legs, by magnitude, how big, the eye becomes the most important reference point for understanding the world. In the modern period this changes again and we start to question the hidden inner secret of the object. Marx analyses what's hidden under labour, biology looks at the inner workings of the body, language becomes studied in depth as linguistics. These disciplines arise at the same time as transcendental philosophy, both are searching for a hidden meaning beneath disciplines begin to bleed into each other. In the modern period, language is no longer seen as being representative of its object. The world becomes much more complicated. The secret is hidden within things. Ordering, the ordering of species, for example, gives way to examining and understanding the hidden structure beneath. In these three human sciences, economics, biology, linguistics, Foucault argues, we can see man emerge as an object of study for the first time. This is why he famously remarks that man is a recent invention. If this new object of study, man, is dictated by these changing orders of how we study him, a reflection of ourselves appears as a mirror maze, shifting. Foucault predicts that this way of thinking will change again. Man would be erased, he says, like a face drawn in sand at the edge of the sea. His important point is this. We may look at the Renaissance way of ordering by similitude as ridiculous to our modern eyes, but to them, of course, it wasn't. It had the appearance of truth. If there is no neutral, ahistorical, objective position from which to view the world, what will future generations think about our own episteme? Foucault's later genealogical project, marked by the publication of Discipline and Punish in 1975, is similar to the archaeological one. They are, in a sense, two sides of the same coin. Foucault's genealogy asks how we got where we are now. What effect has history had on our own minds? The way we're educated, punished, and governed all have an effect on our constitution, on our makeup. Instead of being a Cartesian I or a Kantian rational self, the Foucauldian subject is a product of history. And in Discipline and Punish, he's interested in how we're disciplined by history. In her introduction, Lisa Downing puts it like this, Foucault analyzes the means by which the body is made to conform to the utilitarian ends of social regimes thanks to the operations of disciplinary power. Discipline and Punish takes the history of the prison system in France as its central example. For Foucault though, the walls of the prison reach far beyond their physical boundaries. They become part of the psychology of the mind Dictating the rules about what is and what is not acceptable, what's authorised and what's forbidden, the modern disciplinary system has a conforming effect. Discipline and punish starts with a stark description of the torture of a man in 1757 for attempted regicide. The flesh will be torn from his breasts, arms, thighs and calves with red-hot pincers, his right hand holding the knife with which he committed the said parricide burnt away with sulphur, and on those places where the flesh will be torn away, poured molten lead, boiling oil, burning resin, wax and sulphur melted together, and then his body drawn and quartered by four horses, and his limbs and body consumed by fire, reduced to ashes, and his ashes thrown to the wind. Foucault then quickly jumps to a dry description of a prison timetable just 80 years later, A change from punishing the body to what he describes as punishing the soul. The prisoners' day will begin at six in the morning in winter. At the at first fun, drum roll, so the prisoners must rise and dress. The prayers are conducted as by as the chaplain and followed by a moral. At quarter to morning. six in the summer, quarter to 10, ten o'clock, the, the prisoners the leave prisoners their work go and go to the refectory. At twenty to eleven, the at the drum roll, the prisoners form into. At twenty minutes to one, the prisoners leave the school in divisions and return. to At one o'clock, they must be back in their workshops. They work. At four o'clock, the prisoners leave their workshops. Seven o'clock in the summer, at eight o'clock. At half past seven in the summer and half past eight in the winter, the prisoners must be back in their cells after. He argues that while this appears to be a humanitarian shift, a progressive. shift shift. There's something going on beneath the surface. The torture of the body usually attracted an excited crowd that also sometimes sympathised with the condemned, while the executioner was always treated as a moral outcast. Violence against the crown was met with violence against the offender. Everything was on display. It was accepted that power was always going to be challenged. In modern society, though, prisoners are locked away from the eyes of society beyond walls, and instead of simply punishing the act, crime is examined, prodded, psychologized. the subject is moulded. Rather than punishing the crime, simple retribution, power attempts to control the shadows lurking behind the case itself. Discipline becomes about creating citizens. Punishment is not just punishment, but also social control, a strategy of politics, what Foucault later calls biopolitics. In this classifying and ordering of criminality, we see how the genealogy of discipline and punish is explicitly linked to the archaeology of the order of things. Power, knowledge, discipline are all inherently connected and justified by their claim to be rational and reasonable. Criminality is researched through psychology, which, as we saw, during the modern period is organised around finding the inner secret, the underlying desire. Why are you a criminal? He goes on to argue that this logic works in the same way in the army, in disciplining soldiers, in schools and even in hospitals, in the apparatus of the state and the economics of capitalism and the requirements for efficiency that comes with it. He asks, is it surprising that prisons resemble factories, schools, barracks, hospitals, which all resemble prisons? He charts how in all areas of society there are stricter methods of surveillance, a tighter partitioning of the population, more efficient techniques of locating and obtaining information. The subjects are expected to conform, become normalised, something he argues didn't exist in previous periods. Discipline becomes about hierarchical training, standards of judgement, examination, how good or right you are compared to the norm. He uses the image of the panopticon, a prison designed by Jeremy Bentham in 1791 to illustrate how this power has the effect of being hidden. While the guards can see in every cell, the prisoners cannot see the guards and so do not know if they're being watched. It gives the illusion of being watched all the time modern discipline, Foucault argues, works in the same way. It's important to emphasize a few things though. Foucault isn't saying there is anyone specific conspiratorially pulling the strings behind the scenes, and similarly because power in this sense is diffuse, it's everywhere. It isn't for Foucault simply negative. He doesn't think that everything that displays power should be simply torn down. His goal is only to describe, to bring to the surface what is usually hidden, Neither is he arguing that things have necessarily got worse. He's just describing a change. He does argue though, for example, that prisons don't diminish crime rates, and that like in the order of things, what seems normal and humanitarian to us will likely seem ridiculous and arbitrary to later generations, as might another way we have of looking at things. Foucault's later work on sexuality is a genealogical one too, but also incorporates an ethical perspective for the first time. The first three volumes of the history of sexuality were published between 1976 and 1984, and were meant to continue, if not for Foucault's death, in the same year. He argued that the way we think about sexuality is largely an invention of the 19th century. The first volume is influential because it's a concise articulation of Foucault's position in general, and can be read as an extension of his ideas on archaeology and genealogy. The second and third volumes look at ancient Greek and Roman sexuality and ethics, linking the two together. The central question outlined in volume one is that of the repressive hypothesis. The dominant narrative of the 70s argued that where Westerners were once sexually oppressed, we have become slowly more liberated, more liberal. Is it really that simple? Like the rest of his work, Foucault questions this progressive, teleological narrative. He points out that sexuality and attitudes to sexual practices have fluctuated dramatically over time. For the Greeks, sexuality was very clearly linked with ethics. Sexual pleasure was seen as being part of man's animality, and as such, overindulgence of enjoyment was seen as a failure to master one's animal side. Like other pursuits, mastering your character was seen as being good for yourself and society. Being austere wasn't something commanded by the state, but was personal, about managing oneself in all areas of life. Jump to the Victorian period, on the other hand, and we see the classificatory and taxonomical attitude toward ordering described in the order of things sexual acts begin to be named, codified, given labels, measured. Sexuality became empirical, scientific. And before this, under the church, a certain sexual act might have been condemned as a sin, but the person wasn't labelled and classified by this act. In the Victorian period, the rise of classification and the invention of man meant that a person could be labelled and defined by their sexual acts for the first time. Taxonomies pushed us to know ourselves, to put ourselves in predefined boxes organized by medical professions, schools, prisons, scientists. But again, as the episteme shifted to the modern one that tried to uncover the hidden secret, sex became more intimately tied to the question of who we really are, what you really want, what are your desires. Psychoanalysis, for example, becomes popular. Foucault argues that Victorians were actually far from silent about sex, as their prudishness suggests they would be. He writes that, rather than the uniform concern to hide sex, rather than a general prudishness of language, what distinguishes these last three centuries is the variety, the wide dispersion of devices that were invented for speaking about it, For having it be spoken about, for inducing it to speak for itself, for listening, recording, transcribing and distributing what is said about it. Paradoxically, naming taboos also had the effect of bringing those taboos to light, drawing them out, and so fertile ground began to be sown for what we think of as sexual liberation. Without creating a category though, what is there to liberate? Because sexual impulses aren’t just biological, they have a relationship at differing times to things like personal psychology, theological ethics, scientific classification. His later work also shifted to a focus on politics and what he called governmentality. the process of how all of this, classification, taxonomy, psychologizing about sexuality, discipline, health, all had an effect on the body through biopolitics, He was interested in how modern power is productive on bodies, not simply defensive of the crown, for example. Foucault's genealogies are loosely related to the birth of capitalism and the dwindling influence of the church, but he largely avoids making statements about causation because his ideas about why things change and how power relates to knowledge is meant to be ambiguous and complicated, just as power really is. Importantly for Foucault, power is not unidirectional. It manifests itself everywhere, in differing combinations and directions. He says, Power is not evil. Power is games of strategy. For example, let us take sexual or amorous relationships. To wield power over the other in a sort of open-ended strategic game where the situation may be reversed is not evil. It's part of love, of passion, of sexual pleasure. And let us take another example, the pedagogical institution. I see nothing wrong in the practice of a person who, knowing more than others in a specific game of truth, tells those others what to do, teaches them and transmits knowledge and techniques to them." He does think though that when this power is illuminated, drawn out, given a name, theorised, it can be addressed, judged, questioned, modified and maybe even justified. For Foucault, it was simply important to name power. Foucault's thought, his technologies of the self, as he sometimes referred to it, has probably been the most influential of the 20th century. To understand him is to see how much our history has an effect on us, and how long term we have to think to understand ourselves and how we can change society. He extends psychology out of the confines of the skull to the time spans of millennia. And I'll end on an optimistic tone that Foucault himself advocated. My optimism, he wrote, consists in saying that so many things can be changed, fragile as they are, bound up more with circumstances than with necessities, more arbitrary than self-evident, more a matter of complex but temporary historical circumstances than with inevitable anthropological constraints. If you enjoyed this video, then please give me 30 seconds to explain how you can help then and now continue. I'm fan-funded, so if you think you get as much value from four of these videos as you do from just one cup of coffee, then please consider pledging a dollar per video. That's just 3 to $4 a month to help keep this channel going. I've also started a merch store, which with the help of a designer friend, I'm going to be adding to slowly. But for now, you can get this birth of man top in different styles and sizes. Links to all of this below. And please, if not anything else, hit like, subscribe, the bell, and follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.